Hello, this is Sam Mendes, director of Skyfall, and this is the DVD director's commentary. Lots to talk about <laughs> with this movie. And uh, one of the first things was uh, the debate we had about the gun barrel logo, which was uh, always designed, or at least in my head, was always intended to go right at the beginning of the picture. But what you see here now is, um, of course, another version of the gun barrel logo, which is uh, uh, Bond walking and then stopping and lifting a gun. Uh, so when I put it in front of this image, it didn't work at all. It felt like this was a repetition. But in the end, I think it worked out better with it at the end, which is in itself a kind of new beginning. And one of the things we determined we would do, myself and Rob and Neil and John Logan, the writers, would be to drop the audience down in the middle of a mission that had an effect gone wrong and ask the audience to play catch up a little bit, which is what is happening here. We deliberately don't say what's happened up to this point. We don't say where Bond is. Uh, you only discover in a minute that he's in Istanbul, although you hear the call to prayer uh, right at the top over the Columbia logo. This is where, effectively, Bond discovers that he has mislaid or lost the list. Uh, and this figure we're seeing now, Ronson, another agent who's clearly dying um, and uh, is, in a sense, deliberately a younger version of Bond. He effectively knows Bond, that he's leaving a man to die and someone who is uh, full of promise. And this comes up later in the scene between Bond and M. And so... Really, there's a, a version of Bond there in the room. And then this very deliberate shift from, from the dark of, uh, of the interior to the noise and the light and the activity and the hustle and bustle of Istanbul, which is a magnificent city, and we loved every second shooting there. Uh, and again, introducing a new character, Eve, uh, played by Naomi Harris, in a way that seems to indicate that Bond already has a relationship with her, or at least knows her. And again, asking the audience to catch up. One of the things that I was also very conscious to do uh, in the action sequences of this movie, particularly in the first 10 minutes, which sort of is an albatross in a way <laughs> with Bond movies, because their expectations of the opening of these movies is so high. Um, was to create parallel action at all times. Um, so we never got stuck in, as it were, linear chase, A chasing B, you know, Bond chasing or being chased, and that alone. But we had uh, here a chase between Bond and Eve and Patrice, but also what's happening at MI6 between M and Tano. And of course, when Bond and Eve are separated, a three-way sequence which is all being built to single climax and uh, the sequence as a whole I conceived kind of as a series of Russian dolls in a way you think it's going to be a car chase then it's the shootout here in the marketplace and then it becomes a bike chase and then the bikes become a and you go onto the train and the train from the train bond goes into the digger etc etc so it, it's constantly shifting and um developing in interesting ways. 
This was actually one of the most amazing locations, the centre of Istanbul. We really took it over and they were immensely generous and supportive in giving uh, their uh, local monuments over to us. And we were suitably careful. The MI6 set was built at Pinewood and we shot it quite separately. And in fact, there's a lot of sequences in the movie in which people are trying to communicate with each other on headsets and earpieces that were shot a long, long time apart. Oh, this is one of the things about a movie of this scale, that you're shooting things over such a long time. And here, this is a, a nice mixture, I think, of stunt work and uh, Daniel and Ola, who plays Patrice so very well, even though he never speaks, mixed in together. Uh, our brilliant second unit director, Alex Witt, and head of stunts, Gary Powell, uh, spent a long time up on this roof with bikes uh, doing this sequence in tiny pieces. Um, and, and in the end, it's a combination of stunt work shot on the roofs itself, themselves, a camera helicopter, green screen for the occasional close-up, a head replacements, uh, all sorts of things used. And I hopefully at the end, it seems pretty seamless, but uh, uh, given that in fact it was shot over a number of weeks and the weather changed constantly, is also brilliantly timed by Roger Deakins, obviously our great cinematographer. We shot a lot of stuff up on that roof and a lot of stuff down in the, in the Grand Bazaar. And uh, in the end, it just was surplus to requirements. Uh, the sequence ended up being around 11 minutes, something like that, and uh, which was right on the edge of being too long, I felt. And we were very hard on stuff that didn't um, seem necessary or outstayed its welcome or in a way fetishized the action. You know, I think there's a great tendency to be bigger, louder, faster, and to sort of forget the story, almost as if the story stops and the action begins and then the story doesn't start again until the action's over. Spent a long time on this bridge, a long time conceiving this this whole chase. I suppose we must have spent about a third of the time in the whole movie working on the first 10 minutes. And uh, the transition from the bike to the bridge, I think is one of the things I, I like most, actually. I like that, that jump, which is a lot of which is Daniel hitting the roof of the train and rolling. And also Andy Lister, who was a brilliant stunt double for him. Here you have this, uh, I suppose, cat and mouse game on top of the train. You know, I felt like the action sequences, pretty much like the movie as a whole, needed to breathe in and breathe out so that it wasn't relentless. Um, and there were these moments where you could see uh, exactly what was going on in someone's head. Um, and there were stealthy chase bits like this, for example, rather than just full pelt the whole time. We chose, I suppose, Roger Deakins and I, even though we rarely talked about it, actually, because I think we just assumed this is how we would go, to shoot this movie as a whole um, in a classical way, by which I mean very little handheld camera, uh, and also limiting, our, limiting ourselves often to one or two cameras, where I think the expectancy was that we would use more and to be much more 
particular about how we light the frame, a little less random. So what you see here actually is not an enormous amount of moving cameras. I mean, they're on moving items. Obviously, the camera is on a train that's moving, but they're locked off a lot of the time or they're still. And a lot of the time was spent in getting these um, cameras to to be still enough uh, and, and not be constantly bouncing around on the items that we were shooting on. This was a, an idea here on the digger that was came out of a series of meetings between heads of department. Uh, and this is where teamwork is crucial. And I couldn't possibly have done this movie without people like Chris Corbold, head of special effects, Gary Powell, head of stunts, and everyone else who was in those rooms as we debated and turned over every possible option in an action sequence. And someone eventually said, well, what if there's heavy machinery on the train? And then someone said, what if he gets in it? And then someone said, why doesn't he drive it? And then this idea of uncoupling the cars emerged. And then this tremendous idea that I thought, anyway, of, of reaching out the arm of the digger to jam itself into the roof of the carriage and Bond walking across the arm itself. Um, now, who had those ideas and at what point? It's almost impossible to say, but I can say that I was supported throughout by a brilliant team, um, including all those people and many more. Uh, and then... Um, uh, what we came up with, I think, is has got a real, I don't know, there's, there's, there's a lot of invention in it. At the same time, I hope, as in staying vaguely within the boundaries of the real. We we shot the, the whole sequence in three different places, Istanbul, Adana, uh, which is uh, further east and uh, near the Syrian border, about an hour from the Syrian border. And then further into the mountains here. Uh, so we took it from the city to the outskirts of the city and out to the magnificent landscape, Turkish landscape that was new to me, but really extraordinarily beautiful. And what you see here is Daniel on top of the train. Um, that won't surprise you, but it certainly surprised me on the day because he did some things here that frankly um, were right on the edge of being insane. Uh, <laughs> And uh, this is one of them. Um, as they emerge out of the tunnel um, and are fist fighting on the, on the top of the train, he was connected by a tiny little wire and nothing else. And that, uh, the bridge that you see, there is a massive drop below it. Uh, and when you're standing on top of the train, you can't see the bridge itself. So it really does feel like you're traveling through the air. And when you're going fast, it's pretty scary. I don't get vertigo, but I felt it when I was standing on that train. And um, he was magnificently brave and inspiring uh, to the crew. Uh, so here you see all three strands uh, of the story coming together. You see Eve, who's now made it up on top of the mountain and is ready to, to shoot, but can't get a clean shot onto Patrice. You get uh, the tension building up as they've lost everything except the speakerphone at MI6. And of course, you've got Bond fighting on top of the train. So all those things are going, going simultaneously. The idea behind this whole sequence was, of course, you expect it's Bond. You expect him to have a triumphant moment, triumphant finish. But instead, M takes the uh, orders her to take the shot, and she takes it and she shoots Bond. And. Uh, 
this was the this is effectively the beginning of the story bond dying as it were um disappearing and then reappearing to find everything changed and this moment where m and indeed eve and tanner and everyone mi6 effectively think that bond is dead this is the first of a series of very skillfully i think animated trans lights the city that you see beyond judy is uh, created in post we were on a on a stage here at pinewood um and the crossfade between the sound of the water and uh uh, the rain outside MS6 and the water and the waterfall was uh, something I had in my head from the very beginning. This shot of Bond sinking down was taken in the water tank, uh, the underwater stage at Pinewood. And then we segue, I hope seamlessly, <laughs> from Bond uh, sinking down underwater into this tremendous, I think, uh, opening credit sequence done by Danny Kleinman and Frame Store in London. I gave Danny a pretty rough brief, which was that Bond should go down into the water and effectively um, travel into the underworld, um, a kind of mm, across the river Styx, uh, almost like uh, Alice going down the rabbit hole. Uh, and uh, on some level, we should experience the story of the movie in Bond's unconscious, as it were. And he took that and brilliantly ran with it. I, I pushed him hard to keep the thing moving forward, keep the camera moving forward, traveling the whole time. Uh, so we felt we were on some kind of a journey. And Danny delivered a series of storyboards, which I gave notes on and he made adjustments to, and then he animated the storyboards. I gave notes on those, but uh, what he came up with in the end and the final version, I think, is, is really tremendous. And, of course, he was aided in that by a fantastic song written by Adele and Paul Epworth. Um, they were immensely helpful, really, from the very beginning. They, they came in... Uh, to meet me and Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, the producers. They were delightful and uh, eager to write a song. And the deal was that if either we or they didn't like it, then we would just scrap it. Um, Adele went away, read the script. I told her the story. And um, one day, about three, four weeks into shooting, uh, this song turned up and it was perfect really um atmospherically the mood the lyric everything was just bang on um and so danny was able to work uh with the music in his ears and uh and structure and judge the rhythm of the whole sequence to the music which i think um really uh really helped him and us and everybody um but i can't say enough about adele and how how delightful she was from the very beginning and uh, she was concerned I think about writing something that wasn't personal I think she she said look you know my songs are personal they're from me and, and they're about myself or my life and what have you and I, how, do I, how does one write a Bond song and I said well you know look at Nobody Does It Better which is an incredibly personal 
song and really, you know, Carly Simon presumably not entirely writing about Bond. Um, but in the end, she wrote something, Adele, uh, that was remarkably specific to the picture. And what you got here is this travelling through Bond's wound, which recurs uh, during the course of the picture. Um, and also, you know, you've got these images of Skyfall, the house, and Bond as a child earlier on looking through a crack in the wall, and then here, um, Bond as an adult. And uh, director credit right in the middle of Daniel Craig's eye. <laughs> and... Um, we uh, fade up in the traditional establishing shot, as it were. I say traditional, it feels like Bond is a world of establishing shots. Uh, captions. And it seemed to me to be a good old-school piece of storytelling. Um, now, when we tackled this movie, uh, we all, Rob Neal and especially John Logan and I, went back to the last trilogy of Fleming novels, which are very dark strange stories about Bond that is most depressed, suffering from what he calls acidy, which is a combination of depression and cynicism and self-loathing. Um, people ask about taking Bond into darker areas, but the truth is that it's all in Fleming, uh, just that the movies were never really able to go as dark as the books, particularly when they first came out. But here we have this idea, which is sort of hinted at in You Only Live Twice, of Bond dying, coming back as somebody else. Delicate subject at our first encounter. And Judy Dench as M, alone in London and feeling Bond's absence, which I think you can sense in that shot in the uh, car window, and being introduced, or having to go and meet uh, the new head of the... Uh, Defence Security Committee, Gareth Mallory, played by Ray Fiennes. We had a lot of discussions, Rafe and I, about how to graduate his performance or grade it, if you like, from scene to scene, because, of course, I was very keen that the audience saw and understood this character as somebody uh, at best ambiguous and at worst uh, a cold fish um, and a difficult and steely presence in the film. But I think one of the great strengths of Ray's performance, and it's so precise and so uh, detailed, is that you gradually realise, of course, he's not at all what he first appears, and in each scene you learn something new about him. Here he's at his most tenacious and steely, and effectively he's sacking uh, Judy Dench as M. And uh, from here on... You feel that this could well be and might well be, I hope, uh, M's last hurrah, uh, that it's all coming to an end. Uh, we were very conscious, I think, because we knew what we were heading towards at the end of the picture, which is, of course, M's death and replacement, that we were to lay that in as early as possible. Prepare an audience, if you like, for it. Uh, and also, at a certain point, tease them with it, because I think most of the audience feel like maybe when uh, Javier Bardem's character, Silva, arrives in the inquiry that he's going to kill her. But that's a, a false ending, as it were. Here is the splendid Rory Kinnear as Tanner. Fine, fine actor. I'm very lucky to have had him in such a 
a small role. Uh, but um, I think Tanner's a character that could definitely go somewhere in future movies. And we decided that this story of revenge, effectively, a very specific personal story between Silver and, uh, and M, the way he first communicates and the way he first tries to inflict humiliation, as it were, on M, is through this piece of cyber-terrorism. And uh, it was very important throughout that we got the graphics right because the graphics seemed to me to be part of Silver's character. And also you're trying to guess at who is doing this based on what you see on a series of computer screens. So it took us a long time, um, but Andrew Booth at Blind did the graphics, did a brilliant job. Um, and uh, I think we got this combination of darkly comic, weird, um, I hope we did, um, which is, uh, in a sense, the first appearance of Javier Bardem's Silver. And then I was very conscious that this was done in a an almost plain way, this, this explosion. Um, in order to achieve this, we built a third-scale model of MI6 on stage at Pinewood, miniature units, and Steve Begg, our brilliant head of visual effects, and Chris Corbell had a special effects combined to shoot it, and then we dropped that in. But I wanted, as always with this movie, to base as much as possible on real physical special effects and as little as possible on visual effects, which are there really to supplement and enlarge, magnify, if you like, what's already there. Bond has a tradition of doing things for real, and I wanted to take that to the next stage. And then we discover where Bond really is. Initially, you might think he's, he's in good shape when you see him making love to a beautiful woman, but you can tell from this one shot and the shots that follow that he's still struggling. You see his wounds, you see his state of mind, I think, and even though he's dropped down in this, this beautiful rather desolate beach on the coastline of Turkey. He's clearly a solitary and lonely figure. And uh, we wanted to, again, give us the time to sense what Bond's life might have been like for the last couple of months. M says, or rather Mallory says, it's three months ago you lost the list, so he's been there for a while. Um, and... Uh, it's that strange mixture of romance uh, of the location, but also enough reality to make it, I don't know, quite bleak. We looked for a game that he might be playing that uh, indicated his state of mind, the darkness and the place that he descended to, and we came up with this little game. There's vague echoes of Chris Walken in The Deer Hunter, nothing quite so serious, but this uh, scorpion that uh, he's balancing on his hand while he drinks and earns a bit of money on the side. Um, over by Daniel's left, there you see our associate producer, Greg Wilson, sporting a little goatee that he grew for that scene. Um, and uh, then we cut to the same bar in the morning, the cold light of day, and this rather beautiful shot that we managed to achieve in the late part of the day, which is Bond in silhouette. Uh, starting drinking again. And then uh, 
our pre-recorded news announcement done by Wolf Blitzer, splendid CNN reporter who, um, as much as possible with graphics and all uh, television uh, news in the movie, I did them all before the scene so that the actors had something to respond to that was real. Just much easier to uh, to do it for them and uh, much better, much easier to judge for me as well. So this was all shot live. Uh, and uh, we have this moment where Bond, I, I think that's a fine bit of acting by Daniel, like the way he looks at it, the way he, he seems alive, awake for the first time in weeks, perhaps. And this, I think, beautiful camera move, which was a Roger Deakins idea. I had a static camera in my head and he said, what about this? And we tried it. I thought it had a real grace to it. Um, something epic about it and the re reveal of M. We shot this um, interior in Greenwich, the Maritime Museum in Greenwich. And we had other scenes there, funeral and what have you, that we ended up taking out. And this interesting piece of trivia here, this is the exterior of John Barry's house. Um, John Barry, of course, the great uh, composer of many Bond scores uh, recently, very sadly, uh, deceased. But um, they allowed us to use the outside of the interior is built on stage at Pinewood. There's an interesting story attached to this scene, really, which is that I shot it once and I felt I got it wrong. Uh, I had to hold my hand up and say I thought I'd staged it badly and it was a bit safe. And I also felt it was too long and a bit polite. And when I got into, uh, watched it in dailies and got into the cutting room, I, I asked uh, Barbara and Michael if I could shoot it again because I felt like we'd just... It was a pivotal scene, really, and I felt that Bond wasn't in enough in enough pain and also uh, they were too nice to each other. So much of this movie is about the relationship between Bond and M. It's very important that it's not resolved in this scene. And I suppose the big note from the previous version was that it had, that they seemed to end up being good friends again. Um, and here you feel, of course, the respect and the relief that M has that Bond's still there, but... I think it's the one of the best bits of acting from Daniel in the movie, the pain you see, lack of vanity for a start in looking how he does in the scene, which is, you know, pretty shot. And um, particularly the way he says, well, I'm here, um, the sense in which he, he almost can't believe he's back. He knows perhaps he shouldn't be, he knows perhaps he might be finished. And he says himself, as just now, so we're both played out. Good question. And uh, we're under she says, if you thought that, why did you come back? Um, and that seems to me a pivotal moment. But even at the end of this scene, Bond himself is not, uh, is not sure he's made the right choice. And I think right the way through to Macau, he's still in a kind of state of questioning what he should be doing and whether he's doing the right thing. The might be in order. And I think one of the things that was strongest about Daniel was he was prepared to play, in a sense, his own age in the movie. and In a, in a movie that is in part a meditation on age and loss and mortality. I thought that was very important. And uh, I think uh, no Bond has been asked to stand around while so many people call him old and finished and done. But of course, that's why I think, or at least I hope, why an audience gets behind Bond's story in perhaps a different way, sense his vulnerability, his weakness. 
almost as if he has to restart, retrain and relearn how to do it and who he is. We shot this scene um, in Smithfield Market in London, that rather beautiful circular ramp going downwards and cobbles. And a lot of this movie, of course, takes place underground, and we did see a lot of underground London one way or another. Um, this is a separate location that we shot as if it was a continuation of the tunnels. Where are we, Tony? And um, uh, one of the things I was very, very conscious of was working with Dennis Gastner, our magnificent production designer, on creating a sense of a very powerful, atmospheric underground London that has echoes in it of the Ipcrest file, Guess Get Carter, even the third man at times, um, but is very specifically um, a way of giving London a dark and threatening, mysterious atmosphere. Um, so you see him transition there from a location onto this corridor that was built as an extension to the set um, on the 007 stage at Pinewood, where we built the whole uh, drop-down office floor here, uh, the new MI6, as Tanner puts it. And um, yet another example of Bond returning back to England to find everything changed. Uh, M is no longer giving the orders, MI6 are in a different place, and of course, in a minute, he will meet an entirely new Q. But here we have this training sequence, which I sort of shot and designed along with Roger Deakins to be almost a montage, as if it's one continuous speech by Tanner in which he's delivering the information. There's quite a lot of information here about who they think or who they are guessing is the person who's attacking M. Um, and at the same time, we're pushing Bond to the limit physically and shooting this scene Daniel really, <laughs> he did all this a lot, a lot of pull-ups and a lot of push-ups. And shortly after what you see here, he turned to me and went, I, I can't do any more. <laughs> he had a good workout that day, but um, he really did push himself. And again, you feel it in Daniel's performance, which is one of the reasons why I think it's so very good. This was shot, uh, this was not built, these... These were shot in the old Vic tunnels under Waterloo Station, those tall arches and that sense of the cavernous depths and the sense in which you can't ever quite see the walls and the, extre the extremes of the rooms that they're in, I think was very important. But Roger lit it with these um, either square or straight neon lines, which give it a real... Um, sort of seem to bear down on the space a bit, a bit more pressure. Um, good, as Stanley Kubrick proved in uh, Doctor Strangelove, good overhead lighting can hold the master shot for much longer um, and they bring a kind of tension into the frame. And here here they are again, in a minute you see them, those uh, those overhead lights bearing down on that, that table at which sits Nicholas Woodison, the doctor, Dr Hall. This was an idea I had when I was working with John Logan this word association game, and it came back brilliantly written, I think, by John, and uh, equally well played. Uh, seemed to me a beautiful and mouth-watering prospect doing a word association game with James Bond. I couldn't resist it, and um, it actually turned into the basis of the first trailer, which I thought was really successful. But it's also, of course, the first time uh, we introduced the name of the picture, 
which is Skyfall. Sunlight. Which, of course, now, I'm assuming you've watched this movie once and you're now Murder. strong enough in body and mind to watch it again, listening to me droning on. But you probably know is the name of his childhood home. Um, and she, of course, M knows that. But uh, Bond is not prepared to go there. I'll talk about it. And one of the most difficult things in the movie, knowing that we were going to go back to Bond's childhood home, was how much he was prepared to talk about it um, and how much Bond as a character can speak about his past or indeed speak about anything to do with his personal life. And the truth is he says very, very little, um, maybe two lines, less than two lines, about his past. And that is to say to M, you know the whole story. He never really says it himself. Um, is a very beautiful piece of lighting by Roger. And again, all this was in uh, the old Vic Tunnels. And uh, this is, in a, a sense, a big turning point in the movie, which is when he decides to cut out the shrapnel um, that uh, from his wound uh, and give it to Tanner to be analysed. And from there, the story kicks off in a way because they trace it back to a very specific weapon and from that to the person who fired it and that sense sets us off on our on our mission again looking at these scenes that the depth that we were able to create on on uh, 007 stage and the sense of atmosphere i was very happy with um in the mi6 uh, central atrium if you like and again the movie depends i suppose on on seeing bond alone quite a lot uh, particularly in the first act of the film um sensing his loneliness and his isolation and his his questioning of what he's doing and in that respect i think it shows more of bond to the audience than any of the characters get to see of him which again i think builds up a very particular relationship and that little shot there i think is very important of him standing alone waiting looking at his watch sort of not being given access in the way that he has traditionally had in the past which again makes him more of an outsider something to do with killing 007 well you do but one of the ways back in is through his relationship with eve played beautifully by naomi harris well do me a favor will you it's not an easy part to play. She spent months and months driving that grey Land Rover in various parts of Turkey. But she kept her concentration and her character throughout and her patience, which is not easy. But, of course, there's a conversation here, which we come back to at the very end of the movie. And he says, um, feel works not for everyone. And she obviously takes it in. She's listening to him. Then you better keep moving. And there's that lovely... I've still got it, grin, from Daniel as he walks away from uh, from Eve. And then this introduction also of, of something that also, again, returns at the end of the picture, which is the bulldog, which you've already seen in M's office before it blows up, and you see again in this scene, of course, returns a third time. That's a symbol of M and a private joke between the two of them. This was a scene that uh, was longer when we shot it and I nipped and tucked a lot to try and tell the various stories that are going on here because really Mallory knows exactly what he's doing, Rafe finds his character. He's pushing Bond and M to the point where they have to justify Bond's existence as a, as a secret agent in the field. He wants to hear why they think it's a good idea. 
He wants to make them fight for it. So it's a kind of good bit of leadership in a way. But I think when you first watch it, you think he's just being nasty. His job is to be mean to Bond and he wants to get rid of him because he's perhaps a little bit threatened by him or in competition with him, you're not quite sure. But in reality, the strategy that he's using is to make them fight for it. Uh, and I think Rafe plays that very, very beautifully. There's a sense of some other strategy going on behind the bravado. And he does exactly what he intends. He makes M stand up for Bond and he makes Bond stand up for himself. And once they've done that, he leaves. And, uh, and his parting shot is uh, don't cock it up, which always makes me chuckle. Um, and I love the look that Daniel gives him as he leaves here, sort of slightly amused. He's not all that meets the eye look, which I think we're going to discover is the case later on. And then, in a sense, story kicks in, which is uh, the analysis of the shrapnel fragments and uh, where it leads Bond, which is to Ola Rapace as, Re as Patrice again. Okay. And uh, the beginning, in a sense, of our plot, uh, which is that uh, he's clearly working for somebody and they have a tip-off as to where he's going to be and he's given a very clear, brief omission, in a sense, in the old-fashioned way by M. I say old-fashioned because for many years, I suppose, M and Q were asked to play the exact same scene with Bond from movie to movie. M gave Bond the mission and uh, explained what the story would be, in a sense, to the audience. And Q would immediately follow that scene and uh, there was a lot of pay attention Bond and he would hand him the gadgets or the weapons and off he'd go. Um, so in a sense, we are doing that here. We're doing, this is M giving Bond a mission and the next scene, of course, is Q. Uh, but of course, there's a twist on both scenes. Here, the big twist, and it's something that... Um, I was very keen on from the beginning is that she um, lies to Bond about passing the tests. In fact, he hasn't, and even he doesn't know that. And I love the little throwaway line before Judy leaves and the look on Tanner's face. But Bond is confident he's passed, and it's only really when he gets to the dead city and meets Silver that he realises he's failed and that M has just taken ever a big risk on him. And this was something that... Uh, John Logan came up with the meeting in the National Gallery and the image of the fighting Temeraire, which is the uh, JMW Turner um, painting that hangs there. We had to rehang it slightly so it, <laughs> it was in the right place on the wall. But of course, it's exactly as Q says, the big old ship being ignominiously hauled away for scrap. And uh, uh, he sees it. Obviously, we play that as a metaphor for Bond, um, the uh, the aging Hulk being taken to the scrapyard. And Q says, what do you see? And Bond says, a bloody big ship. The irony is completely lost on him. Complexion is hardly relevant. Your confidence is. Age is no guarantee. And then there is this, uh, this wonderful scene, which um, uh, John Logan wrote, which I think is a a kind of mini classic for me. I just think it's a really great bit of writing and it's a beautiful piece of uh, acting by Ben Whishaw and Daniel Craig. Or not pulled. In a movie that thematically, I suppose, is about the old and the new, um, here they both are. 
and um, they can learn something from each other, perhaps. Uh, and there's a sense of mutual respect that emerges out of the little combative dialogue uh, that begins the scene. Um, we talked a lot about gadgets in Bond. I love gadgets, I love the gadgets in Bond, but um, we have to face the fact that most gadgets are available to, to you now in the Apple Store or similar shops. And uh, there's barely anything you can imagine that doesn't really exist unless it's something to do with weaponry. So we decided to go back to basics, to have something, but not a lot, um, and to make play of that in a way. Uh, so the Walther PPK, of course, is Bond's traditional gun, but it's got a twist. We redesigned, um, along with Walter, the, the handle of the gun. Um, and of course, it's imprinted with Bond's DNA, so it only, it only recognizes him as its owner. Seems to give it a little bit of a personality. And then this wonderful line, which when one watches it with an audience gets a, a big laugh, um, which is, uh, were you expecting an exploding pen? We don't really go in for that anymore. Please return the equipment in one piece. Ben manages to convey a kind of mildly patronising um, and yet remains somehow warm, an air of slight superiority. And then, of course, Bond uh, quoting The Tempest by Shakespeare, Brave New World, and then cutting to that very thing. The Brave New World of Shanghai, an extraordinary city that I was lucky enough to visit on two or three occasions in the prep for this movie. But then we shot, actually shot it, uh, not in Shanghai, obviously you shot these establishing shots, but this is the aerial unit under the tutelage of um, Alex Witt. And here we are, this is uh, this pool actually is somewhere entirely different. It's in Docklands in London and um, we dropped the cityscape in beyond. One never knows exactly how many of the tricks to give away in these um, commentaries. You don't want to demystify the entire thing. But there's no question that we had a much better time shooting the interiors of Shanghai, not in Shanghai, because, of course, what we were trying to do, particularly in the fight in the high-rise, was something that would have been impossible on location. So this airport scene is, in fact, taking place in Ascot Racecourse, the new stand a rather magnificent building of several stories, and a great number of enormous escalators, which we filled with, um, with some very well-chosen extras. But this here is uh, a shot of the real exterior of Shanghai Airport. And this was actually a rather complicated little sequence. Uh, it ended up being four or five shots. Um, but this pursuit, which felt to me like uh, shoe leather, as they say, uh, when they are a phrase that means unnecessary journeying and exposition, perhaps. But we were able to cut it right down, so we just wanted the idea that he was uh, pursuing him. There was a sort of, again, a little bit of cat and mouse. And the building itself that you see here, the base of this building, is in the city in London. We shot this on a Sunday night, a very cold Sunday night, sometime in January. And uh, this long move, Roger Deakins and I talked about a couple of the camera moves in Chinatown. 
Polanski's masterpiece, this uh, very simple establishing of the building and the car drawing up to the building. It was something I wanted to try and achieve. And then this, this little um, moment between Bond and the gun, um, this little half-smile he gives and this little memory of Q, and then he turns and sees that Patrice has killed the security guard and the game is on. We thought long and hard about this whole sequence. I wanted it to be wordless. Um, it's scored very brilliantly by Tom Newman from beginning to end. In order to achieve what we needed to do in the upstairs of the building, we had to build the entire floor of the Shanghai office building and the building opposite on the 007 stage at Pinewood. And in order to do that, we built it in miniature first. Uh, the graphics department came up with all the LED screens and all the neon, and we put the glass panels in, and then we shot it on a lipstick cap. This also was, if you can believe it, built. We built four stories of an elevator shaft, which was too dangerous to do on location, and Daniel leapt up and grabbed hold of the underside of the elevator. And then these tighter shots of him, Daniel and Patrice, moving, we shot live, and then this is a visual effect extension of the building, and this is shot on green screen. So we've tried as best we can to, to meld them together. And I think one of the, the great things that the visual effects department and Steve Begg did here was um, create the sense of the city that you can see outside the windows as they ascend in a kind of as natural a way I think as possible, by which I mean you don't have that thing of it being in, uh, in sharp focus that sometimes happens with visual effect. And now we are entering our big stage set in Pinewood. This is a, a slight echo of Vertigo, Hitchcock's Vertigo, and both the framing of that shot and also the scoring, which has a distinctly Bernard Herrmann flavour to it. And then again, this uh, this continued cat and mouse game as they as they creep across the floor. And now we enter the uh, the set at Pinewood. And uh, this is it suffice to say this was the most dangerous and difficult set to work on because people kept walking into panes of glass, not surprisingly. If there was a reflection on a pane of glass just beyond uh, the one in front of you, the, the glass itself would disappear. And so a lot of people, including myself, walked into glass. Luckily, no serious injuries, but a lot of bruised heads. This sequence was shot. We did a lot of coverage partly because we uh, we couldn't quite predict and anticipate the, the way the reflections were going to behave because we kept seeing interesting and fabulous shots. So it was very tempting to to keep um, keep shooting and seeing what would happen with the reflections and the building opposite and, and Bond reflected a number of times in different ways. This was something, though, that we, we were very sure to get, which is the moment that Bond stops, feels he's been seen, but it's in fact covered by a reflection. And uh, in, in, in a weird way, it's a sister shot to one of the shots 
I did in Road to Perdition with Daniel Craig, in fact, in which uh, the boy thinks he has been seen by Daniel's character, but in fact, he's looking, Daniel's looking at his own reflection. So we talked about that a little bit. And uh, one of the reasons why it's got a shape, the shape that it has, is the particular genius of Stuart Baird, the editor, who has managed to create tension out of something that could potentially have been quite languid and dreamy and poetic. And the back forth between uh, what Patrice is doing and what Bond is doing is, is actually far greater than I'd imagine when I shot it. One of the things that uh, we liked was the noise of the glass cutter and the tension that that added, but I also think that uh, it's one of Tom Newman's finest pieces of music, this strange sort of surging and building and dying score here that, uh, that, that creates a very odd tension. Um, as we're trying to work out what Patrice is doing and what he's doing with the man opposite in the building into which we're looking now. And then we're building to this moment when I was, uh, I was very keen that we did uh, this fight here in a very stylized way, by which I mean not in, in cuts, uh, but once the fist fight starts in earnest, this long push in on the silhouettes fighting in the window with the jellyfish beyond, and these muzzle flashes that briefly illuminate uh, Bond and Patrice's faces uh, as they fight right on the precipice of a 79-storey drop or whatever it is, and then this is one fluid camera move, of course, which tips over the edge um, as Bond flips Patrice over and asks, asks this crucial question, which really is a reminder for the audience about what he's actually doing, which is who's got the list and who are you working for? Um, because the story at the end of the day is really about, you know, it's Patrice is, is our lead. So it's very important that he finds it out. Of course, it's too late. He's gone. And then this is um, the first appearance, really, of Berenice Marlowe's character, Severine. Behind her is this... Uh, this painting, I can't remember what, exactly what it's called anyway, Giacometti, and uh, one of the most famous stolen paintings in the world. And still no one knows exactly where it is, so maybe someone listening to this commentary stole it. If you did, give it back. This, uh, I suppose, slightly tenuous <laughs> connection here, which is that Patrice's payment is in the form of a casino chip, and the casino chip says Macau, and that's his lead. Now, actually, uh, Berenice's character first appeared at the airport, and uh, there was a bag switch. You, you see her, and Bond sees her give the bag to Patrice, but we cut that scene out, and we felt that this was a much better scene uh, to meet Severine for the first time when he sees her across... Um, we don't. We ourselves, the audience, don't get close to her yet. And then we shift, of course, to M's house, and yet again, Silver appears in a sense, in the form of a graphic. Um, and in each graphic of Silver's, the three times he appears, there's always that that skull, that death's head, which uh, recurs. And then. We shift, we've Bond's travel to Macau and now we're there. 
this set was constructed at Pinewood as well. We shot an enormous amount of this movie in London, either on location or at Pinewood. And uh, it's one of the reasons why it's so important to have A, a great production designer, and we did, and B, a great cinematographer, uh, because obviously they mustn't look like sets, and we did it in uh, Dennis Gaster and Roger Deakins. So this is Eve being sent to check up on Bond by M. You're not really sure whether she's telling Bond the truth here, whether she's coming clean as to why she's there, but that's all pa part of the the game. And uh, we introduce an important piece of story here, which is that we raise the stakes a little bit and set the clock ticking. There's a sense that the list is now released and that people are going to be dying now and that uh, it's more important than ever that Bond gets going and tries to find out who's doing this. So um, there's a sort of upping of the ante in this scene. Very traditional. Well, I like to do some things the old-fashioned way. We tried to create, obviously, this sexual tension between Eve and Bond uh, because, of course, we know where we're headed with Eve and she is, in fact, Miss Moneypenny. Um, we could only take it so far uh, because it's a tradition, is it not, that Moneypenny never really goes the whole way with Bond. <laughs> so we talked a lot about how far we could go without making it seem as if they had definitely stepped together. Because I think it's important for future chapters in the movie. Here we did a little bit of um, gentle tracking from side to side, this sense of um, something sexy about the way the camera's moving, and uh, there's a kind of um, love making in the in the shaving itself and the movement of it and how close they are and how still they are. So there's more to him than meets the eye. Hitchcock. One of the great lines I probably said before on a on a uh, commentary is shoot your murders like love scenes and your love scenes like murders. And uh, there's a little bit like a little bit of a a love scene shot like a murder here as she um, cuts his throat or doesn't. That's better. Then a nice line from John Logan. Old dog, new tricks, which is kind of a slogan for the movie, I suppose. New Again, Daniel having to stand around while he's being called old. Now, the centre of this image is for real, which is the front of the casino, the bridge, and the dragon's heads were all shot, if you can believe this, on the paddock tank at Pinewood, which is a very small uh, expanse of water. And then everything beyond it is visual effect. But again, it's an example of creating something for real at the centre and then expanding it outwards. Um, there is no shot in the movie that is entirely made up of uh, in, in a computer. Everything is an expansion of the real, if you like. Um, and these dragon's heads was an image I had very early on and gave to uh, Dennis Gassner, who then said, well, why don't we make the whole thing float in the middle of a lake and created this as it were, imaginary casino. Thematically, Bond, in a sense, 
has now got his mojo back and there's a sort of symbolic shaving and uh, and then you see him in the tux. We introduce the Bond theme woven into the establishing music of the casino. And then this magnificent Dennis Gassner set built on a stage at Pinewood um, and built in a sense for this this one shot. Well, not just for this one shot, but built in order to accommodate this one shot, which is a steady single steady cam shot that introduces us to the casino and holds in it both Eve and Bond at the same time. So you see her walking behind him there in the background and there while they're talking. She's walking all the way across the floor and he is rather daringly in silhouette in the foreground. Silhouetted against the magnificently lit set by Roger and then um, we have them cross in the foreground and it takes them all the way to the cashier's cage where he cashes in finally the chip. And this is a shot I like very much, her eyes coming up above the, the bars of the cage when she realises that um, those chips don't grow on trees. That chip means four million euros or whatever it is that he's given. This was, of course, the second appearance of Severine. And we wanted to try as much as possible to present her in the classic femme fatale way, a dangerous presence, and then give her somewhere to go. And I think one of the strengths of Berenice's performance, which is really good, is that she initially appears to be one thing, but very quickly a Bond unpicks her up at the bar, and as it were, and uh, she turns into something completely different. She's obviously terrified and living in fear of this man who we haven't met yet. This was uh, an, an, an on-set debate between me and Daniel. I remember talking about whether he look, look at the money or not, whether we just take it naturally. It was worth doing it in the end. Um, nice sort of steady cam move here where he tells us where she's about to be by a little look across. And then that nice that nice move, that trade-off from uh, Bond to Severine and back to Bond again. Now you can afford to buy a new drink. Wanted to keep this fluidity going from the moment that he enters. He's on the boat at the beginning, coming all the way in and never really uh, stopping until he got to the cashier and then starting again as he crossed the floor. So we used, we used Steadicam, which we didn't use a lot in the movie, but we've used it here to keep it going, sense of being alive. We used handheld, not that often. And uh, when we did use handheld, it wasn't always for action. In fact, the, the scene between M and Bond in M's house is a handheld scene that's very static. And I just, because I just wanted it to be uncomfortable, knocked off, centre tired, too tired, exhausted characters on the edge. I just didn't want it to settle somehow. It felt too set. Also, when you shoot handheld, things move faster, uh, generally. Um, just things on set can work in a slightly more organic way. It's the same with Steadicam, which is happening here. There was a little scene we cut out there. Again, we have a bit of fun with um, Bond talking off camera to Eve and then Eve appearing. And you realise that um, they've been talking for a while and he drops his earpiece into the glass of champagne. And here was my my way of dealing with shaken, not stirred. <laughs> I thought, 
I actually see a martini being made. We don't need to say the line. He just says, perfect. And um, in order to do this, we got a martini specialist from the Savoy. Um, splendid chap who taught us how to make a martini properly, chill the glass and all that. So there was several people being instructed on the day, including me. And, uh, and then we get this scene, which really was a pivotal scene, in which Bond gets to the bottom of, uh, finds a way of, of getting Severine to lead him to where he needs to go, which is to our villain's lair, which we will see in a bit. There was some concern from the studio early on that we had a lot of quite long dialogue scenes in the movie and, uh, you know, I think there's always a feeling that an audience won't take that in an action movie or what have you. But uh, I was very adamant that if the story was well told enough and if the characters were interesting enough and, indeed, if the scenes were well written enough, then um, they would hold. And that goes for several of the scenes with M in the first part of the movie, this scene and the scene, of course, in which Bond meets... Uh, silver for the first time. They're all long, three, four, five, and in the last case, six-minute dialogue scenes. And one of the things I'm most pleased about in the movie is uh, is with the fact that when people come out, they want to talk about that first scene between Bond and Silver, for example, just as much as they want to talk about the action sequences. And it just proves that if you hit those scenes, I think, at the right time in a movie, it, it's possible to sustain the tension through them until the next higher energy sequence, if you like. That was a long time ago. And here, I think, is a tremendous piece of acting by Daniel when he uh, he reads her like a book, classic Bond in a way. I don't think he's... Uh, he would call himself a feminist. Um, he's certainly... Uh, feels himself to be in control of this situation. And, uh, I don't think it's, a, it's, a, it's a classic trope from Fleming that he's able to unlock a woman with one speech or a touch. I'm not sure it's entirely credible in life, but we want to believe. Will you? Someone usually dies. <laughs> and uh, there's a wonderful neurotic edge to what Berenice is doing in the scene a kind of um, a kind of trembling tension and uh, uh, mixture of desire and fear, which I think is really good. She had a an image in her head of a dragon, um, the talons and the claws and the smoke, and I think you can see it in the performance. You can see her from her fingernails to her jewelry to the way she exhales her smoke. It's um, it's the floating dragon casino, and there's a dragon inside. Uh, more than one, in fact. There's her, and of course there's the Komodo dragons, which we'll see in a minute. I felt there was a, a place in the movie for something of the old style, but which I call, uh, which I mean, the kind of Roger Moore, slightly more fun action sequences, maybe perhaps a bit more tongue-in-cheek, and one of them was the Komodo dragon. Oh, dragons. And uh, we talked about this, and it was very important to me that you don't see too much of them and that uh, it's over as a sequence quite swiftly. 
of course, this was Gary Powell's idea, actually, taking on the three men with the, the suitcase full of euros, which, by the way, weighed an absolute ton. And I think it worked out really well. This was not something I've done before, which is stage a sequence um, around, you know, a, a computer-generated animal, which people are, in this case, pointing at and looking at uh, without it actually being there. And it made me, uh, how can I say this, not want to do blue screen pictures and uh, deal with computer-generated creatures in the future because it's very, very difficult uh, to judge. And I think in the end, uh, it's pretty good visual effects work on the creature itself. And uh, we had to, obviously, we were pulling tank there, our splendid heavy from Shanghai, on a wire. And here we had uh, Daniel jump off a real stuffed Komodo. <laughs> we animated it afterwards. And then Eve reappears. And then we've got a couple of, uh, couple of the more classic Bond one-liners. Put it all on red. And then uh, it's a circle of life, which he says in response to screaming of the man down in the pit. And one of the things Daniel and I talked about in, in pre-production a lot was trying to get some of the humour back in that he felt might have uh, been lost in the last movie or two. It's one of the most difficult things, actually, to not do it in a gaggy way, but to make it organic or as much as possible organic. That's something we we wrestle with throughout. Yes. And then we shot this little boat scene uh, on the dock in uh, Turkey, actually, uh, although it's obviously uh, designed as the South China Sea, and uh, as is the, the yacht itself as it's cutting through the waves uh, shortly after this. And here we have um, Severine disappointed to discover that, or she thinks, Bond will not be there. And um, we cut to herself in the shower afterwards, and of course trying to find a way to shoot this so Bond doesn't look like a sex pest <laughs> was an interesting challenge. But uh, you initially, I think, should feel a slight sense of danger and threat when you see that shadow in the foreground. And then he steps in with her. And uh, this is a nice, a nice couple of bits of John Logan. I like you better without your Beretta. I feel naked without it. Is a, a good bit of. I think one of the things I I like most about what John did on this movie is he wasn't scared of writing lines that were potentially corny, if you know what I mean. The bigger scenes and the the grandstanding sometimes is required in a in a bomb movie was not something that he would shy away from, and so I could I could take it and perhaps cut it back a little bit, which I'd much rather do than have to, as it were, pump it up. This was something we shot in um, pre-production, this little piece of video footage. And it was something that uh, we didn't initially use, but we added into the scene to give it a kind of, again, a kind of intensity and make the stakes a little bit higher. And this, in a sense, is the beginning of 
uh, Mallory beginning to understand uh, or appreciate M uh, for what she's able to do. Just the beginning of her taking him on uh, in a more persuasive way. It's picked up again in the uh, inquiry when she refers back to something he says here about uh, there are no more shadows. She answers that in a scene later on in the movie. And those little moments between characters, so things more than one thing is happening at once, if you like, uh, I thought they were very important. And then we we move from M saying the shadows to the opposite, which is this bright sunshine and, and the boat cutting through the waves and our first sight in the distance of Silver's dead city. This uh, is a magnificent boat, wanted a more traditional uh, yacht and we were able to find this and uh, it's, uh, it was two of the more pleasant days on this movie, out in the Turkish, out in the Mediterranean, um, with those islands behind us, or in the sunshine. Uh, and um, here we, uh, I was very conscious of having, uh, not presenting the city in a way that was static, because obviously it's a visual effect and it doesn't exist, but it is based on a real place called Hashima in uh, uh, the coast of Japan, which is an abandoned city that floats in the sea. And a lot of these sets were constructed around photographs of that particular location, which is uh, we visited and is impossible to shoot in because it's uh, dangerous. But I love this notion of a city that was recently, if you like, modern. It was quite a, it was a 20th century city that had somehow been abandoned and turned to rubble and dust. And what you see here, they're actually walking along, is a street constructed again at Pinewood and built by Dennis Gastner with uh, visual effects extensions behind them and shot, if you can believe this, in early March. We were blessed with four days of sunshine. We ran outside and shot as much of it as we could. Well, all of it, really. And it uh, finally leads Bond, this labyrinth through the casino, across the ocean, into the dead city, and finally to the opening of the doors of an elevator and out steps uh, Silver. Hello, James. And... Uh, when John Logan first delivered this scene, Bond was knocked out on the on the yacht by a heavy and woke up to find Silver sitting opposite him in this room. And we only discovered the city when he exited. And when I was working on the script, I had a very strong sense that we needed to give him an entrance and that that entrance should lead into the speech. And, um, and then I... I felt that uh, we needed to do it in one. I don't quite know why I felt that, but I just did, and I was always very certain about it, and um, we didn't shoot it any other way. There was no coverage. I warned Javier that that's what we would be doing, and uh, he looked at me with a slightly worried expression because in addition to being a two-minute speech, of course, to state the obvious, he's, English is not his first language, and he's playing a very, very verbal character here. 
And I think that's one of the more remarkable aspects of his performance is how well he uses language and how well he uses or expresses nuance and subtleties within the language, which is not his own. Uh, amazing, really. One of the things Javier did was translate uh, the script back into Spanish, rehearse it in Spanish, and come back to me with specific requests about word changes and adjustments in um, punctuation and all sorts of things. Uh, and when he came and when he arrived on set, he was fully, fully prepared. And also, uh, having talked to Javier in pre-production about all the details, he he said, I've got a few ideas. I, I want to try to change my hair color and my eyes and my face and my silhouette. And I said, well, I, you can if you want, but I'm not sure you need to. And he said, let's let me try. So I thought, well, you know, I trust him. He'll have a go, but he, I'll probably say no to one or all of those things. And he turned up to the uh, screen test, uh, the camera test, rather, and he walked on a set and nobody recognized him. That was the first thing. Nobody knew who he was. And when he went in front of the camera and I called action, he turned to look right into the lens. He didn't speak. And looking back was another person. And it was clear that everything that he had done was going to work. Uh, it just needed minor adjustments. And so that's where we took it. But he based it on something that I think we talked about in, in prep, which is that Silver is, in a sense, Bond's doppelganger. He's his double. And I always had an image of a fallen angel. Um, and there's a reason why he's dressed in white, Bond's in black. He's kind of a negative image of Bond, which you can see in this shot here. He's what Bond would have been or could have been had he turned bad. And, of course, he was abandoned slash betrayed by M, which you could argue Bond has been in the first reel. So there are all sorts of parallels. And uh, I think that interested Javier and me and Daniel. And these were two of the, if not the two, most enjoyable days on the picture shooting this scene. Two great actors at the top of their game uh, and two characters fucking with each other, <laughs> basically. Or are they trying to fuck each other? You don't know. It's certainly a power game, one way or the other. And uh, I needed to persuade Javier to be a bit more extreme in this process of seduction, inverted commas, which is what he's doing here. Um, and some of what he does is so delicious. They did get the giggles doing this scene a couple of times. But I think the way Bond handles them is brilliant. It's unflinching and um, extremely amusing. And again, one of the biggest laughs when you see it with an audience is when Bond says, what makes you think it's my first time, which is a great line from John Logan. I wanted to create within this room, by the way, a kind of temple of, uh, of hacking. Those computers that you see in the foreground are based on a lot of research we did into computers of real hackers and uh, What's the so a lot of the talking we did with those hackers, which was, I have to say, some of the most fascinating research that we did in, in the process of doing this movie. There was a debate about this, uh, this shot of Silver touching his legs, about whether it was too much, and I was always keen on it. Can't have too much of a good thing. All the physical stuff so dull. And... Uh, 
we have this um, another um, series of lines about Bond's age and his uh, his impending pension, uh, his weakness, his knees, etc. Not to mention the fact he's just failed the tests and and is psychologically damaged and addicted to pills and drink. Apart from that, he's a perfect human specimen. At least here, there are no old ladies giving orders and no little. However, uh, we had a wonderful time allowing, in a sense, Silver to attack and uh, desecrate MI6 and to put the obvious statement, which is that it's passed its sell-by date and um, deserves to be scrapped so that M later and Bond in his actions can prove the opposite. And here, one of the things I... Most keen on is um, is Javier's line, England, the Empire, MI6. You're living in a ruin as well. Seems to me he's living in a kind of communist island, which is already within 50, 60 years been reduced to rubble and dust. And um, he draws a direct parallel between that and the Empire and England's glorious past. And then a great, a great line from... Bond, you know, when Silver says, what's your hobby? And he says, resurrection, which is not only about character, but everything to do with the franchise somehow. In this, the 50th anniversary Bond movie, he's still going stronger than ever. Um, and now we come out into this courtyard. Uh, I shot this little shot of the speakers because I had a feeling I was going to use music in this scene. And I actually had in my head a Jacques Brel piece. It ended up being a, a piece of music by Charles Trenet. I don't know why I had this idea of a, a French song, but it was always in my head the kind of playfulness and strangeness of the, that song echoing through that empty courtyard. And this memory of communism, this giant statue fallen and uh, Severine tied to it. For the sharp-eyed amongst you, you'll have noticed that the Macallan, the 50-year-old Macallan, is dated 1962, which is, of course, the date of Dr. No, the first Bond movie. One of only a couple of little in-jokes about the age of the franchise and the age of the people involved. Darling, darling, your love is and I love the way Abia does this with severing with great tenderness kind of passion, romance, very strange. He he never really uh, gets very angry in the in the movie. He smiles a lot of the time and he never he never really runs, maybe for twenty seconds. And yet it's amazing how scary someone can be when they don't lose their temper. So uh here the pressure's on for Bond to play this insane game. We had an idea uh, that there was space here for a Fleming-like game. Bizarrely, in uh, You Only Live Twice, I think it is, they play rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> this is slightly more dangerous, but it's no less uh, psychological. And um, the courtliness of it, the ritual, uh, seemed very appropriate. And the slight camp 
seem very appropriate for Silva um, and in the way that uh, Javier was taking him. Did you really die? And of course, Bond, is there any you think, is back to how he was on the firing range at the beginning when his hand is shaking. Um, but it turns out that he's pretending. He deliberately misses. And, uh, of course, the line that he delivers after Silver kills Severine in the most callous way is designed to relax them for a second before he pounces there. And this took about a day, <laughs> shooting these uh, tiny pieces. It really is action, bang, cut. That's how those days go. And the, in, the, the only time you ever achieve a kind of fluidity and speed is in the cutting room. Um, but it just needed to be, you know, a bit balletic, but it needed to have detail and be very precise. I don't like jump cuts and I don't like random cutting. It all had to fit together like a jigsaw. Um, and in that I was aided by, as I said before, a brilliant editor, Stuart Baird. And then this reveal of the radio, which of course you've seen Bond activate earlier. And there is the uh, a city scene from above, which was shot for real, but the helicopter's visual effect, again, tremendous work by Steve Begg. So, um, and all, by the way, all the visual effects houses, the many visual effects houses in Soho in London who worked on this movie, all of whom did spectacular work in the subtlest way. And one of the... Their piece is, is visible now when the the glass defrosts in front of your eyes and we reveal Silver in his cell. A great set by Dennis Gassner, I think. Um, a reuse of the office floor of MI6 and a redressing of the space, putting in this um, hexagonal cell, glass cell, and the strange effect it has on Silver's voice inside the cell, these weird echoes. And the sense that Bond is watching Silver and trying to... Seeing parallels, as it were, between himself and Silver and the situation that he got himself into with M. And this is the scene, of course, that reveals what is behind all of this. It's also the scene that we shot. It's the first big scene we shot with Javier. And in addition to being mesmerizing in it and giving me many, many options in the cutting room, many, many different performances, all of them brilliant. He also rather winningly, uh, when we first shot it, stopped in the middle of the scene, started laughing and said, I can't believe I'm sitting here. That's Judy Dench and Daniel Craig <laughs> revealing himself as the big softy that he is. He's a delightful, delightful man. And... Uh, I think we all, Daniel and Judy included, loved working with him. He's also very, very funny. Um, and some of that sense of humor, I think, some of that mischief you can sense in the performance. But there's this very strange um, lighting, this otherworldly top lighting that's coming from the cell, which really gives the whole scene a very eerie atmosphere. Um, and of course, we're building to the point where he reveals his uh, the damage that was inflicted in a sense by M when she abandoned him life climbed to me like a disease so and then 
you could say that one of the things that Javier had to cope with that was most difficult, along with the, the hair and the, the eye colour and the fact that he was putting contacts in, and is, uh, is the fact that he was wearing false teeth the entire time because uh, he was, in fact, wearing a... Um, very thin veneers over his own teeth because he needed to remove them in the scene, but also because he needed, once you realise that in fact what he's got in there are false teeth, you, you needed to realise that what you've been looking at was a perfect set of fake teeth. And I love how little M gives him in this scene, how, how much she refuses to give ground and how much he is disappointed by that or appears to be. Of course, you could argue that what Silver is doing both on the island and here is he wants to be captured and he has already a plan is, is in action, which is that he's got his laptop captured by Q and he's already planned to hack into the MI6 computers. And here is this moment which Javier reveals his teeth um, or lack of them and the noise that happens when he takes off his cheekbone is something that I work very hard on in the mix with our brilliant mixers and sound designers, Scott Milan and Greg and Per Holberg and Karen. Fantastic sound team working in immense detail on this movie. And some of their best work, as always, is in the quiet scenes and those tiny moments that land in different ways perhaps to some of the more expansive and one of them is the noise of the teeth coming out and going in very particular and um, quite shocking always makes me feel slightly nauseous and here's the moment that M reveals exactly what has happened what Silver's real name is and what he did and of course what M did to him of course what M has done to him is not that far away to what she's done to Bond at the beginning, which is to sacrifice him, in a sense, for more agents, more men. You know, the theory being one dead agent is better than five or 50. It just happened to be you. And so he processes it, and we go back to the welcome return of Q and Q Branch, um, the new Q Branch has uh, conceived by us and Dennis Gastner, again, a kind of version of the underground, but this time painted white, the same uh, arches, um, but now with all these screens and these graphics. And um, this is the moment, this is why there's a close-up, when he plugs the MI6 system into Silver's computer. In a sense, this is the moment that Silver enters their system now. And when... Q says we're in. In actual fact, what's happening is Silver's in to MI6. You only know this afterwards, but one of the things I like about this sequence is that you sense something's up, you're not quite sure exactly what. And using the principle of parallel action that we tried to establish in the first reel, we've tried here very much to integrate the action into the sequence so that you really don't know or you don't feel exactly where it starts and where it ends. But really this is a long action sequence that begins around here. 
uh, shortly after this when they discover that Silver is absent that involves a huge chase through the underground. But what we're able to do is to tell three stories simultaneously. Bond, obviously, chasing Silver, and um, Q following Bond on the combination of CCTV and graphics, and M simultaneously fighting for her job and her life, you could say, in this inquiry into MI6, led by the wonderful and mercurial Alan McCrory, playing Claire Dower, MP, who is um, very gently and acerbically grilling M and hauling her over the coals. What we had here was something that uh, I really felt strongly about, which is I felt like Bond somehow needed to help Q decode what was going on um, on Silver's computer. Of course, Q has transferred what's on Silver's computer to the big screen, so we didn't get stuck staring at a laptop, apart from anything else, but also so that Bond could be a little bit more active and we could do what he does here, which is to walk around and to make it not just a series of close-ups of people huddled over tiny laptop screens. This little moment was influenced somewhat by great moment in uh, Edge of Darkness, the original television series directed by uh, Martin Campbell, of course, who directed Casino Royale so brilliantly, and without whom, in terms of making Casino Royale, we could not possibly have made this film. It was he who re-established the tone of, uh, of, of Bond, um, removed pastiche, and made it possible to add some of those little things back into this movie. Oh, no. Can someone tell me how the hell he got into our system? And uh, this is the moment, of course, that Q realises that Silver has hacked into the entire system and that he was the person responsible. He realises and he feels like a pillock. But nothing to be done. Now Bond, who has already guessed uh, ahead of Q what's happened, runs to see. But of course the doors and the, all the security systems have been disabled by Silver's computer and everything's open. And he's gone. He's gone. And that was an idea that we worked very hard to try and make clear in post. And in order to do that, we needed to recut and also change the graphics somewhat in order to make it very, very clear that what, in fact, Silver's computer is, is a Trojan horse. It's the thing that he wanted to be captured and he wanted to be plugged into so that he could do what he's planned to do here, which is escape down into the heart of underground London and through underground London to Q to M um, and the inquiry. So this is a combination. This particular place you just saw there, it's just passed us by now, is a real air vent just uh, outside uh, Charing Cross Station in London. Magnificent location that was found by a brilliant location department. Um, but it's intercut with this tunnel, which was built on stage at Pinewood again, and uh, Q Branch. Um, and here you see the... I got all that the beginning of the parallel action and the sense of uh, these things all happening together at different times. We've really got four stories, in a sense, Q and Bond and Silver and M, all happening independent of each other until um, Bond captures or thinks he's captured Silver in the catacombs uh, later on. 
So we built this uh, tunnel and we extended it using visual effects in both directions. We built a manual train because we, of course, can't have a live uh, track because um, it would electrocute somebody. And inside that train, there are people uh, manually pushing, uh, literally running along the track with the train. And then we sped up the film and extended the train. Uh, combination of low and high tech, you could say. And... Uh, it flashes past Bond there, of course, that's a light moving, which uh, to, so that we've got interactive light on Bond and then the visual effect is the train itself in that profile shot. And here we are in Javier Badim's first shot in the movie, um, in uh, another section of Charing Cross. Uh, we shot a lot in the London, London Underground, uh, who were very generous during Olympic year to let us uh, take over various parts of Charing Cross Station and uh, I don't think we made that much disruption but we certainly used a lot of um, extras and we used a train and here it is. Where are you now? And uh, I always loved uh, the irony of Bond being <laughs> thrown into the middle of rush hour on the London Underground, on the tube as we call it. Where is he? And uh, Q, rather, making a couple of rather snide remarks about it's not something you know much about, which is true. Bond doesn't really live in that world much. It's much more Bourne's territory, I think. But here we wanted to uh, really bring him down amongst uh, the people. Um, and we debated a lot, Stuart Baird and I, the editor, about whether we wanted to reveal Silver Dress as a policeman before he was revealed on the CCTV or let that be the moment that the audience understands that's what he was in the package. And um, we went for this, and I think that was probably the right choice. There's that moment when you realise it's him. Um, and then this great first take by Daniel, kind of eye roll, and a classic Bond stunt, which is chasing the train and um, just hopping on the back of it like you do. Um, the uh, splendid Tony O'Donnell there on the station platform. I've done a couple of plays with him and uh, equally splendid Hannah Stokely playing a tube driver. These are people I've worked with in the theatre along with many of the people in this movie. One of the great pleasures for me was coming back to England and working with people I've worked with over the years on stage and on film. And uh, here we are shooting on a real moving tube train. And so much of the sense of these sequences being scenes and story rather than merely chase is comes from the fact that there's dialogue throughout on the earpiece between Bond and Q, or in the case of the first real Bond, uh, Eve and M. And in order to do that, Stuart Wilson, our splendid on-set on uh, sound man, always had playback in the in the earpiece either pre-recorded or live so that people were really talking to each other constantly uh, because i always feel it's better and much more realistic and uh, there's a real sense of interplay almost people pick up each other's rhythms and then we cut back to rory kinnear getting the the message that silver has escaped and they need to get m to safety but she is proud as ever, unwilling to give ground, and uh, he's going to stick it out. Then, I think this is one of the best, certainly one of my favourite pieces of uh, musical scoring in the movie. 
is this uh, this violin theme that plays throughout this little section. It's got somehow the rhythm of the train and uh, it's got a real, it's again, slightly Bernard Herrmann-esque energy to it. Tom Newman has really done a great, great job on this score, uh, weaving in the, the new and the traditional, as it were. And then we had this fun time shooting the escalator slide done brilliantly by Gary Powell and Ben and all the, the stunt boys. Um, but we built these rigs for um, Javier and Daniel that, that carried them down so it, uh, they didn't fly off the end as they appear to do in the movie. And then this, uh, this moment when Bond comes around the corner to be confronted by 25 policemen all looking like uh, Silver. And uh, that little look that you get from Silver, that laugh, that was indeed um, Javier's first shot in the movie. And he wasn't, I wasn't expecting him to laugh. And he looked around and started chuckling and Daniel was standing next to me at the monitor screen and looked at me and said, oh, this is going to be fun, meaning away we go. Um, and it definitely felt that way with Javier and Daniel when they were on screen together. And then we cut back to M being harangued and put under continued pressure by the inquiry and finally Mallory, who's becoming here just a little bit more of a hero, stepping in and, uh, and saving her. And one of the things I liked about this whole sequence is that pretty much every major character in the movie is involved in it in some way, whether it be Q or Mallory or Eve uh, or, of course, Silver and Bond. Here's a little nod to the third man, which is the shadow of Silver on the back wall. I don't know why. I see bricks and archways and shadows. I think of Carol Reed and that amazing movie. And then uh, this moment of standoff between the two of them. Uh, Javier looking very handsome in his <laughs> police outfit. Never has the London police force looked sexier than when Javier Bardem is dressed as one of them. And this uh, set, which is constructed again on the 007 stage, you know, there, were, there was one set after the other going up on that stage, but it is built around a real catacombs that was found by locations up in North London, and uh, it's a replica of it, because, of course, we had to do this to it. We had to drive two seven-ton uh, train carriages that we had built um, through and into this set and destroy it. What you see is a real stunt, ladies and gentlemen. Real, not visual effect. Um, because a number of people have said, well, that's a brilliant visual effect. And I want to say to them, it's two million quid's worth of set being destroyed, shot by 11 cameras. And if it hadn't worked, um, we'd probably still be shooting. So um, that look that Daniel gives is very real <laughs> at the end. And then we cut to just outside the embankment station. There's a little private joke there, the, uh, the show that's on at the Playhouse, which is the theatre behind the car, and Javier gets in his musical called Assassins, which is a musical I did 20 years ago, the first ever production at the Donmar Warehouse, which was the theatre that I ran from... 92 to 2002. Anyway, interesting what you find out if you listen to uh, 
director's commentaries. I'm frightened because our enemies are no longer known to us. So now we go into this final movement of this sequence, which I suppose was the most difficult and the most, the area that I was most uncertain about um, in script form. And uh, as a consequence, the, the area I'm most relieved works, or I feel works, in the movie itself, which is the intercutting of M making this long and impassioned speech about MI6 and why it's necessary and Mallory's reaction to that, and meantime, and simultaneously, Silver descending on the inquiry, getting closer and closer, and Bond trying to catch Silver. So all of these things moving to one point, um, and at the height of it, just at the point when it's all climaxing in a sense, M quotes poetry, uh, Tennyson. The end of Ulysses, we are not now, that strength which in olden days moved heaven and earth, but that which we are, we are. And this, uh, this shot of Daniel, who at the stage we shot it was injured and had to run through, I have to say, quite a lot of pain on this morning. However, it was a magnificent day, the day we shot down Whitehall. It was extraordinary to walk down it in the early morning when the sun came up. And then finally, Silver arrives in the inquiry. And there's this moment he pauses fatally, relishing it perhaps too much. And in that split second, Mallory saves M's life and in the process transforms our opinion of him, I suppose, or begins to change our opinion of him. Meantime, Bond arrives. We've got policemen shooting at policemen kind of weird chaos ensues and then um, this little sequence where Bond comes to the rescue and trying to tell this story trying to keep everyone alive during this sequence was a very complicated piece of staging obviously we built this uh, at Pinewood uh, because we had to destroy it and we had to tell Mallory's story Bond's story M's story, Tanner's story, Silver's story, all these people at the same time, Eve as well, of course, who's helping out. And this, um, the blowing up of the, uh, the fire extinguishers, because I couldn't work out how he was going to get out of this, and that was Chris Corbold's idea, head of special effects. And I think it, it worked out well in the end, particularly because uh, those little moments, those little character details, whether it be Bond winking or... Mallory coming to the rescue, or indeed the way that Silver looks once the, he realises he's foiled and he'll have to retreat, which I think is, is a great moment too. Um, and then this little moment when Bond clocks the car and then we cut to M a few seconds later exiting the building. And then before she knows it, we're off. And it's, of course, 007 driving the car. Nice bit of stunt driving there, hitting the curb. And uh, then we reveal who the driver is. And this, in a way, is the beginning of the third act, sort of the first scene of the third act when M says, too many people are dying because of me. And they decide that they have to... And in a sense, this is also the most far-fetched narrative... <laughs> 
leap that the film makes. Um, we debated this a lot, which is he is determined to uh, to draw Silver to them and use M as the bait. And M says, that's fine, but she doesn't want to put anyone else's lives in risk. And so that's the moment that Bond decides he knows where to take her, and that is to Scotland, away from everything, away from technology, back in time, as he says later, and somewhere where he can dictate terms, or at least he thinks he can. And then we cut to the lockup in this shot in South London, a uh, scene of various uh, stages of my youth. My dad still lives in South London, and I know quite a lot of it quite well. This is near New Cross. And there is everybody's favourite car, well, certainly mine. I don't know about you, but I had it when I was a kid. Um, uh, the model of it, that is. <laughs> £4.99 for Christmas. Um, and combination of seeing that... Uh, car and then hearing the Bond theme for many people, including myself, is a kind of orgy of nostalgia. <laughs> and um, being in an audience which spontaneously applauds at that moment is uh, that's probably one of the good, the best moments of making this film. Um, and here they are driving down New Cross High Street, bantering about the car and the ejector seat. Where are we going? Back in time. Crucially, saying... Uh, as Bond does, back in time, somewhere where we'll have the advantage. And here we are in uh, what I like to call the three Hamlets scene. <laughs> three famous Hamlets, all on screen together at the same time. We have Ben Whishaw, who was a very young Hamlet, and Rory Kinnear, who was a very intelligent Hamlet, and Rafe Fiennes, who was a very fast Hamlet. Rafe, of course, on Broadway, Rory Kinnear at the National Theatre and uh, Ben Whishaw at the Old Vic, and all all of them great performances. I teased them about this when we were doing the scene. I said they were slumming it, doing commercial movies. And then they said, and so are you. Anyway, we all had uh, a good time, and um, their accuracy and specificity as actors really made this a joyous scene and uh, as it as indeed it did for all the scenes they were in and then that little graphic journey as they plot the cctv cameras on the route and try to lead silver up to scotland and here we are in glencoe one of the most spectacular and beautiful bleak but beautiful landscapes almost uh, primal in scotland two lovely days that we spent up there shooting this scene and uh, the mist and the Clouds rather conveniently rolled in uh, down the valley. All this is obviously for real. How old were you when they died? And this was a scene that we debated more than perhaps any other scene in the movie, which is the moment that he talks or doesn't talk about his childhood. All he says in affirmation as to when, when M asks him if this is where he grew up, is, hmm. Uh, and uh, we shot more lines in the scene, but I took them out. I felt he was talking too much, and so did Daniel. Bond never explains, and it seemed wrong that he should hear. And then we took these rather wonderful 
helicopter shots down Glencoe of uh, the DB5. An iconic car, an iconic landscape. And then this little nod to the opening shots of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, uh, the helicopter that follows the car as it goes up to the Overreach Hotel, I think it's called. And uh, finally, the reveal of Skyfall and what it means and what it is. Uh, and we look down into the valley. And although we shot those scenes in Glencoe for real, here we shot this um, in Aldershot. Not quite as beautiful or glamorous, but uh, we found a valley that's used as army testing ground and it has a very strange flora and fauna. It feels very Scottish, moss and lichen everywhere. Very un-English landscape. And then we uh, put the mountains in using visual effect. And we built the interior, so we built the exterior of the house in Aldershot in the valley, and we built the interior on stage at Pinewood. So now we are on stage, brilliantly lit by Roger Deakins, and supplemented by very subtle visual effects throughout. And the most complicated, I think, sequence in the movie begins here, which is the constant shifting in and out between the exterior and which is on location and we shot two months after the interior which are these scenes but it's not just because it's an interior exterior switch it's because we're charting the journey from day through uh, dusk into evening and then night and each sequence needed very specific handling and there was a lot of near darkness and also we um we had a giant helicopter searchlight that we had to replicate on stage and then match for real on location. Um, this is Kincaid. And here is the magnificent and inspiring Albert Finney, one of the greats. Having Albert and Judy on set was fantastic. Judy loved not being the oldest person or not feeling like the oldest person on set. And um, they were tremendous together. And having a new character with the warmth that Albert brings and the the spirit, the mischief, I think at this point really um, gives the movie a little boost. And one of the things I think that we uh, and Rob and Neil and John did very well is 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 time the introduction of new characters throughout the movie. You know, a well-timed entrance of a new character can just give a little surge of energy. And it's the same when you're actually shooting, when a a new actor arrives, it gives everyone a boost. And this is what we've got. And here is this, uh, of course, Bond expects to find uh, the usual cache of weapons, the gun room, and gets here to find they've all been sold. As has, in a sense, the house, um, when they thought he was dead. And uh, there is a definite air of Western about this last sequence. It's back to basics. There's a sense of waiting for the baddies to arrive and knowing that all they've got to fight them with is a tiny number of very basic weapons. And then there's this scene which I'm very fond of, which is this little moment between Bond and Kincaid when it's clear that Kincaid didn't, has never really known what Bond does. Bond very enigmatically simply walks away when he asks him what he does for a living. And then we cut to this, this shot of 
of M waiting and waiting and watching across the valley and a gradual building of tension as they wait for the Silver and his men to arrive. Now, we talked a lot about how we discussed in the movie Bond's past and how he got here. And Fleming himself obviously created the story of his, uh, the backstory of his parents and dying in a mountaineering accident. But we decided that Bond himself couldn't tell that story and it was very important that he didn't try to. So in that respect, Kincaid came in very useful. And this speech is key when he talks about Bond going down the hole, uh, the priest's hole, when he found his parents, he heard about his parents' death and not coming out for two days. And when he does come out, coming out entirely changed. And it always appealed to me that he'd gone in as a kid and come out as Bond and that he never changed from that moment, that that was the hardened person that he became. And I think that uh, it says an awful lot, probably all you need to know. And then we have our Home Alone sequence. <laughs> I'm saying it so other people can't. Well, they can, but and indeed they have. But I was aware of it when we were shooting, that there was a danger that there was going to be a certain sense that Joe Pesci was going to leap through the window at any moment. But I wanted to see them using... You know, I wanted an audience to experience the pleasure, in a way, the narrative pleasure of seeing things set up and then paying them off one after the other. And also understand how three people, if prepared right, can take on... 10 or 15. There's sort of old school storytelling as an old style, back to basics, as I said before, quality to this whole sequence that seemed to ask for it. So that's where we, we took it. And, you know, even down to the last two sticks of dynamite from the quarry. And part of the pleasure is seeing how everything you set up in the sequence develops and pays off when the men arrive. But really you're setting up uh, that feeling of waiting. And this uh, scene that's about to happen where the three of them are waiting and uh, M says, you know, I fucked this one up, didn't I? Where you really feel ultimately as you look back, if you're watching this a second time, that this is the effectively the last scene between Bond and M. You know, that she dies in his arms, but they exchange only two lines there. This is the one where somehow they don't really know it yet, but it's their final serious conversation. And he somehow picks her up. It's very unlike M, I think, to be low. And I think she realizes that she's, well, she says it herself, she's made a mistake. Um, and Bond says, no, she didn't. This is what has to happen. You do your job, you make the best choices. There's no right or wrong. And uh, and then they hear the noise and uh, it's off to the races. I made an enormous change in this scene when we came to shoot it in the valley because I'd imagined that the cars would pull up closer to the house and when I saw it, I thought, this is ridiculous. They would never drive right up to it. They'd have to park at the top and walk down into the valley. And I, I had an idea of 
suddenly felt it was much more threatening and tense and strange if they were spread out and came in a line down the valley. And that we sort of reminded the audience of the DB5, which is about to feature quite heavily. But it's one thing restaging a scene when you're in a room. It's not difficult, but uh, when you're restaging a scene across hundreds of yards of Scottish countryside and there are people wandering everywhere and you have to talk on a megaphone, it takes a whole deal, a whole lot longer. And uh, here is this reveal of the Bond is in the DB5 and yep, he uses it to its fullest extent using the the machine guns that come out from under the, the front headlights. Um, and then we shift from outside to inside and we shift from location to set. And of course, as I said before, we shoot this, we shot this a month or two before we shot the exterior stuff. So we were trying to intercut between the two all the time. And it wasn't easy. And in fact, I think it's fair to say that Stuart Baird and I spent probably more time on this little sequence, the assault on the house before Silver arrives in the helicopter, than we did on any other sequence in the movie except the first 10 minutes. Because balancing the three stories, M and Bond in the car, holding Bond in that car, and also Kincaid, who's in the kitchen, was very difficult to keep everybody, as it were, alive. And uh, make sure that you sense that people were not standing around waiting for people to walk into the house. I think in the end we managed to, we managed to find a way through. But the truth is that in order to do that, Kincaid was probably walking for about a minute between when you last see him and when he arrives in the kitchen. And in reality, it's only around the corner. But um, movie logic seems to, it seems to work. As does that, I think, which is the, the moment that Bond appears and saves Kincaid. One of the things that was most pleasurable was watching Albert and Judy doing a bit of action, <laughs> handling a gun. And I have to say, I think they did it pretty well. And, you know, Judy has to fire a lot of guns and uh, she was pretty adept with the whole thing. Not to mention making light bulb bombs and various other things that she had to do during the sequence. You heard? And then we talked about it happening in two waves. And, and this sequence really was the, the sequence that also took the most time took the most discussion amongst all of us once we were in production. It changed, and once we'd started shooting, I, I, I don't think the helicopter had even been thought of, actually. Uh, but I felt like it needed an element of the spectacular, and I couldn't work out how to give Silver an entrance again, because I felt that's what he needed, because that's what he demands as a character <laughs> and a man. And... Um, Again, it's accompanied by music, and again, it gives opportunity from Bond uh, to say, you always got to make an entrance, which uh, seems to me to be a kind of almost admiring moment between Bond and, and Silver. This was the, the sequence that we came up with uh, after all the debate. We felt that, or I felt that, we needed an element of the spectacular, um, but that somehow we had to stay enough inside the house for it to be 
Mm. Sort of psychologically weird. I wanted it to feel like they were trapped inside a giant coffin and, and uh, holes were being punched in it from the outside. And that's where Chris Corbold and his team uh, came in extra useful. And also, you know, Roger Deakins, it's, it's, it's impossible to overstress how difficult it is to get the lighting matching between an exterior and dusk and an interior before you've even seen the real light and to create this sense that light holes of light are being punched in the wall the whole time by these huge pieces of hardware outside to keep the energy going and the sense that the light is dying all the time and it's going closer and closer to night and Bond is being left more and more isolated, particularly as Kincaid here and M disappear down the pre-sole and leave him on his own. So this sense that um, it's a sort of giant version of uh, the end of Throne of Blood, Kurosawa movie, where uh, um, his Macbeth figure is, is destroyed by a series of spears that puncture this tiny little space and kill him. It's the most incredible sequence. If you've never seen it, go and watch it. Kurosawa was somebody I thought of a lot during this uh, the, the end sequence, trying to find inspiration, really. Uh, the way he, you know, he uses action in the landscape is, is pretty inspiring, along with many other things. I do love the way that Javier that Silva tosses these grenades, these firebombs, as if they're uh, darts, little sort of... Uh, a moose-bouche that he's tossing into the garbage or something. It's an odd image, but I think that um, he has such a sort of uh, particular way of doing it. Bond is now trapped inside, and we were we were trying to get the sense that, again, he was trying to smoke him out, Silver, rather than blow him up. And that, because what he really wants is is M, who he thinks is already in the is still in the house, and in fact we know is now gone off down the tunnel. And here we were with the real helicopter and Javier uh, walking around the house. That helicopter was a big piece of machinery. It was very loud, and it was blowing dust and straw up in everyone's faces. It was blinding on the night. Not to mention the incredibly powerful light attached to it. And uh, again, this intercutting between exterior and interior, trying to tell Bond's story and uh, Silver's story and hear M and Kincaid's story as they escape down the tunnel. And we realize for the first time that M is seriously injured. And in fact, you could almost argue she realizes it for the first time as well. Um, people have asked me when and at what point does she get injured? And of course, it's that moment she drops the gun and that's when uh, she begins to, to bleed and, uh, of course, that's the wound that eventually kills her. Javier, by the way, extremely good at managing to get the firebombs through the window. He's got a good pitcher's arm. And here we are now out back on location in Aldershot in order to replicate the searchlight coming from the helicopter. We had to construct a giant crane that came up from the middle of the house and hung the light over it and then we removed it in post and, and put the, uh, in the wide shots, put the uh, helicopter in because we needed to be able to control, as in this shot, exactly where the light was pointing. And then, horror of horrors, he orders 
the helicopter to shoot, to fire on the DB5, and up it goes. And this is one of my favourite pieces of acting from Daniel in the movie. You know, you can kill me, you can kill the woman, but don't blow up my car. And uh, we all know how he feels. <laughs> so this is the moment that he takes, as it were, you can argue that's his father's desk in the study there. He takes the match out of the, the box on his father's desk, lights the, the blue touch paper, and then delivers this line, which in a way I always found a very satisfying line, which is, I always hated this, this place. This is his goodbye. It's a, too much pain attached to this house and too much, um, too much unpleasantness. Um, Silver doesn't see it coming. And then this magnificent explosion, <laughs> mixture between um, third scale model, again built and shot by uh, Steve Begg, Chris Corbold, the house itself burning, and um, and then visual effects to supplement it and very, very brilliantly cut by Stuart Baird. So you feel, uh, um, I hope, that the whole thing is relatively seamless, So even though it's shot at different places and in different ways. Um, and then this moment that the, the gas explosion rips down the tunnel and Bond narrowly avoids it, which somehow extends the moment of the explosion a little longer. And then this moment of uh, escape by the old folks, by M and Kincaid, as Silver picks himself up outside the burning house, which, you know, is very much burning for real. That was the set. A lot of flame provided by the special effects department. And now we've taken it from day to dusk to evening and now to night, illuminated by these hellish fires behind him. He's a vision from hell. It's like he's in the underworld now. Just make sure one's dead. And he sees uh, Kincaid and M across the moor and he thinks, leave them to me. As far as he's concerned, they're sitting targets and he's going to chase them. And inexorably, he gains on them. Meantime, down in the tunnel, Bond is, uh, is gathering himself and recovering. And again, it's the principle of uh, parallel action, uh, trying to create three stories at the same time, Bond and Silver and Eamon Kincaid and juggling between them. This is perhaps more of a conventional chase. It's sort of A chasing B chasing C. Uh, and we talked a lot about going across the moor. And it was made more complex because at night time we had to shoot we didn't have enough um, we couldn't shoot on location it was too cold and it was um, too difficult to keep the fires burning so what you see here uh, was actually shot in an interior in long cross well at least the bit with javier that you just saw the bit with daniel he's just always shot on location here he's on location and here we're on that cut we're now on Long Cross, so we're now on an interior stage, a very big one, admittedly, shooting on a cable cam because we needed to move the camera smoothly as Daniel was running at speed. And this little section here, the uh, killing of the, the guy and the, indeed the stopping on the banks of the frozen lake is shot interior at Long Cross and the chapel in the far distance, of course, is a visual effect. 
So it was all very complicated. And, uh, but I think in the end of the day, I, th I hope at least it feels organic and, and, and a whole. And uh, as Bond is risking everything, running across the frozen lake, even as the ice is cracking, a few shots ring out and it's Silva on the bank of the lake and they have their final little scene together, or what we think is going to be their final scene. And uh, splendid Swedish actor Jens steps out from behind Bond in a second. I like that you don't see him coming at all. He's just standing behind him and coming out of the mist. And I suppose Bond takes the one final risk, which is to to fire on the ice and to send himself down into the depths uh, in order to escape Silver's bullet. And um, before that, they see the, the sight of Kincaid's flashlight and his torch in the chapel. And then Bond takes the plunge. Um, and again, we, we chose as always, to take the time to cut back for, in a sense, a character moment. You can see the kind of uh, appalled boredom and sort of, oh God, how predictable that he would try and do something heroic expression on, uh, on Silver's face. And um, then we cut to the underwater fight that took place and uh, we were shot on the underwater stage at Pinewood. That was probably one of the most difficult days, actually, because it's very difficult to communicate with the actors, even though there's speakers underwater. It's very difficult to, uh, to direct them. And, uh, however, it was, uh, it worked out in the end and, and uh, we got something, I think, in the end that is helped immeasurably by a combination of Roger's lighting and also uh, Tom Newman's score, which is almost has the effect of, you know, holding one's breath. And then uh, Bond, of course, grabs the flare, fires it upwards and uses the light of the flare to find his way out, um, or at least see his way to the hole into which he fell at the beginning. Uh, meantime, Silver has made it to the chapel finally, and we see what is at the chapel, which is the gravestones of Bond's parents, named, of course, by Ian Fleming, and uh, highly amusing to Silver. Silver sees the irony that this is where it all is going to end. And as he steps into the chapel and uh, M turns, again, a fine piece of music by Tom Newman, this strange, almost choir sound, something a bit ghostly, religious about it. It had to be this way. And again, I suppose one of the scenes that took the most thought because so much has to happen in such a short time, including the deaths of two of the major characters, one of whom after 17 years. <laughs> and there was a certain amount of delicacy involved in staging this. And I suppose this is where 
you know, where my theatre experience is most useful is in scenes like this, trying to um, stage it in such a way as that there's space for everything and everybody and they don't fall, as it were, literally and metaphorically on top of each other. And in that respect, it's like the end of Hamlet or something, you know, a lot of dead bodies to be dealt with and uh, they all need their own moment, their own space. But the scene itself, rather fascinatingly, was entirely changed by Javier. And because we shot in order, and this was, we were going, you know, we came to this very close to the end of the shoot and it was Judy's last scene for real. It was the last scene she ever shot in a Bond movie and it was her last scene in the movie. There was a great intensity on set, but also Javier was able to suggest things in this scene and we gradually changed it almost out of all recognition. Pretty much everything he says in this scene, Silver, he uh, suggested himself and we gave to Logan, John Logan, and uh, we rewrote together. And this idea of um, Silver unable to do it and then asking her to shoot both her and himself and willingly, as it were, committing suicide, killing her at the same time. That was something that we felt we could probably pull off how unhinged Silver had become by that point. And then this long and extended death that separates Silver, crucially, staging-wise, from, nice from M and gives Bond and Silver a final moment together that is sort of personal. And then he steps over Silver's body and we sort of forget about him quite quickly. And it becomes now a scene about Bond and M. Got into some deep water. And working that out and how the key to the scene was the journey that Silver took to Bond in order to die, that took me a while because that's the thing that separates the two and almost makes it into two scenes rather than one continuous scene in which they, as it were, tread on each other's toes. And then we have M's final moments and uh, Bond realises it when he looks up at Kincaid and Kincaid very subtly says, it's, it's no good, she's, she's going. And then this line that we debated a great deal um, it reminded me of the the line that Paul Newman says to Tom Hanks in Road to Perdition, which we debated for a long time, which is, he says, I'm glad it's you. And here she says, uh, I did get one thing right, uh, meaning, of course, Bond. And then she goes. And this was a very, very moving and sad scene to shoot because it was the end of Judy Dench's relationship with the Bond movies. And it wasn't difficult uh, for Daniel to summon up his feelings a great lady a great performance topping off seven other great performances an inspiring person Judy Dench for everyone and very very uh, honoured I was to have her last performance as M in this movie not to mention Albert Finney as you see there and then this pullback which kind of finishes uh, the story in a way and very delicately and at the same time muscular scoring by Tom Newman with those horns coming in, trying to not uh, go sentimental on it, not push too many buttons, but somehow give us a sense of time passing.
And then this, I had this idea of Bond on the rooftops looking down over Whitehall, but we found this spectacular location, which is inaccessible to the public and yet affords the most unbelievable views of the river. You see over uh, Naomi Harris's shoulder there and, and Whitehall beyond Bond and all these fluttering flags, all of which were already up and flying, floating in the breeze, and none of which were put there by us. And then this crucial scene, really, and I say crucial because we were all very worried, and I was worried, about how the movie would recover from the death of M and how we would turn it around so that we would feel somehow, at the end, positive and a new beginning. Um, and we were lucky and fortunate in the weather, actually, the sense of bright, sort of milky um, winter sunshine, which gives it its mood. And two well-written scenes and, of course, two key revelations. One, that Eve is, in fact, Miss Moneypenny. And two, that Mallory is the new M. And this also returned, to very deliberate by me, returned to exactly the same set that existed in 1962 in Dr. No. Um, a d exact replica of... of Money Penny's office, um, the coat rack, and M behind the desk. Uh, the only thing that's different is, for those of you who are observant enough, you will have seen the MI6 portrait that hangs on the wall behind M, uh, or the new M, which you'll see in a minute as he enters the room. Uh, we had another version of the scene in which Tanner came out and said, M will see you now, so you would know that M was there was a new M inside the room, but we decided to not say that until the last line of the picture. Oh, and here's our new M. Ray Fines. Uh, and again, you sense the warmth and respect between the two of them uh, as Mallory makes a joke about something that Bond said at the beginning of the picture, that he was no experience in the field. And then we go back to the most traditional opening of the Bond movie. The only difference is it's the end and it's the new M. And just as the Adele song begins the movie by saying this is the end, we end the movie in the way that we traditionally would begin it, which is with the gun barrel logo and the magnificent reminder that it has been 50 years of Bond movies and that he still ain't going away. <laughs> He's going to return. And... Uh, splendid medley of Tom Newman's music from the movie follows uh, the immortal Monty Norman James Bond theme, one of the great pieces of movie music of history, if not the greatest, which is allowed to simply play out. I was channeling my inner 12-year-old, as I had to do many times in this movie. I tried to make a film that was that I wanted to see, a Bond movie that I would want to see, but at the same time, my 12-year-old self might also enjoy. And I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope some of what I've said has been of interest to you, and I've really enjoyed sitting here and chatting about it. It's a little bit like a visit to the movie therapist. So thank you for listening, and thank you for watching. Bye-bye.